What is not often emphasized is that Hans Blix agreed with President Bush that the only way to get Saddam Hussein to open up Iraq to allow inspections was through intimidation. Hans Blix writes in his own memoir, the deployment of military force is essential to get Saddam Hussein to be cooperative. And frankly, Hans Blix says, yes, we are not finding weapons of mass destruction. But we also note that Saddam Hussein is still not cooperating. That was Melvin Leffler, author of Confronting Saddam Hussein, the most authoritative book yet published on the decisions that led the United States to war with Iraq in 2003. I'm Mark Updegrove. I'm Mark Lawrence, and this is With the Bark Off. The reasons why President George W. Bush chose to wage war in Iraq in 2003 have been shrouded in uncertainty and controversy ever since they were made. Having undertaken meticulous research and conducting interviews with numerous high-level U.S. officials, Professor Leffler offers a fresh account of the years between the September 11 attacks on the United States in 2001 and the U.S. decision to go to war against Iraq in March of 2003. Mel Leffler is Emeritus Professor of History at the University of Virginia and one of the world's leading scholars of U.S. foreign relations. His many award-winning books include For the Soul of Mankind, The United States, the Soviet Union, and the Cold War, and A Preponderance of Power, National Security, the Truman Administration, and the Cold War. You know, Mark, I, I've, I've written about President George W. Bush and interviewed him more than a dozen times and have gotten to know him through the years. And I will say that the, the war in Iraq is the major blemish on the George W. Bush record as, as president, as a two-term president. I, I think that I, I was always inclined to believe, based on knowing President Bush and, and knowing his view on the world, that he was compelled to take out Saddam Hussein uh, and democratize Iraq. And I, I thought he, he, he thought it would have a transformative effect on the Middle East, that, that democracy exported from the United States and maybe made into a uniquely uh, Iraqi democracy would somehow have this domino effect through the region. And uh, I don't know if I'm right in that, in that respect, but based on what you have read and your conversation— yeah. With Mel, what's your view on that? Well, you know, Mel takes a a really nuanced, complicated view of George W. Bush. I think at one level, he's quite sympathetic to George W. Bush and really tries to understand the ways in which uh, George W. Bush found himself in a very difficult situation following the September 11th attacks. He and other Americans expected more attacks, and they understood that a country like Iraq was... Uh, dangerous to the United States and his his and U.S. interests at a time when weapons of mass destruction were spreading and the dangers seemed to be really imminent. That said, he would dispute much of what you just said by mm. suggesting that 
The whole business about democracy promotion was invoked after the fact. This was not what drove the United States to war in 2003. In 2003, Bush, like his advisors, was was driven largely by a sense of the sheer risk of an attack, a new attack on the United States that would be... Um, uh, in part, the, the the work of of the Iraqis, perhaps in in league with terrorist organizations. Only later did the Bush administration, like Americans more generally, start to talk about democracy promotion as a, a, a goal that the United States was fundamentally pursuing in in Iraq. So it was a little bit of a after the fact rationalization for a policy that had failed um, uh, in two thousand and three and two thousand and four. And yet, um, despite the fact that Saddam Hussein was without question a thorn on the side of the United States and the world in many respects, uh, he and Osama bin Laden were natural enemies, right? They were, and, and you know, we had a, a lot of people in the George H.W. Bush administration reminding us of this prior to the uh, to, to the war in Iraq, as there was a drumbeat steadily toward an inevitable war, it seems, at a certain point. Jim Baker was saying this. Brent Scowcroft yeah. was saying this. So I, I, it seems to me that anyone paying attention to the world stage would know that. And yet that seemed to be, to your point, and I've read this, the same things, it, that seemed to be the rationale, which just doesn't make sense. It seems sort of counterintuitive in a certain way. Yeah, Mark, I, I think you're, you're right about that. And certainly Mel Leffler's book points out how dissimilar Osama bin Laden and Saddam Hussein were in many ways and how unlikely it was that they would ever form any meaningful con uh, combination against the United States. But I think there, there are two things that, that Mel Leffler's book does that, that kind of ring true to me that complicate the picture a little bit. For one thing, he has some interesting evidence that Osama bin Laden and al-Qaeda were making some use of Iraqi territory by March of 2003 when the United States was getting ready to launch the war. So there was a little bit more in terms of a connection between Iraq and, uh, and Osama bin Laden by that time than there had been around the time of the of the September 11th attacks. But I think you know, Mel's larger point is, is just to call attention to how fearful George W. Bush and many of his advisors were in that post-September 11th moment, which mm -hmm. made even unlikely threats, nevertheless, very dangerous threats that needed to be to be handled. So um, I think one of Mel's points uh, in sympathy to George W. Bush is that it's it's difficult with the benefit of hindsight to put yourself back in the shoes of these people who had to make very difficult decisions under very stressful circumstances. We now know that there hasn't been another, you know, September 11th or another attack. So it's easy to say, well, this was a wild exaggeration. And what were they thinking? Um, so I think in this respect, Mel is is fairly sympathetic to George W. Bush, although that's not true of every part of the book. You know, and that and that's true about presidential legacies. Frequently, presidents, you and I have talked about this, don't get credit for what didn't happen. You know, we know that the yeah. war in Iraq was a quagmire in the same manner that the war in Vietnam was. But at the same time, you didn't have another terrorist strike strike rather on on American soil. And that's a pretty big deal after 9-11. And I, so uh, it's it's interesting. I've been waiting for this book for some time and, and it would inevitably take 
a period of years for it to be written, for passions around the war to cool, number one, for us to, you know, get more documents that would show the decisions that were made, number two, and just for for the distance that, that um, the perspective, rather, the distance can give you. So very much looking forward to your conversation with Mel. Thanks to everyone who's joined us today. It's wonderful to have you. I'm especially grateful today, of course, to my special guest, Professor Melvin Leffler, who is truly one of the great historians of our era. It's a real pleasure to have you, Mel. When it comes to presidential decisions for war and peace, it seems to me no subject is as topical and certainly as controversial these days as the Bush administration's decision to go to war in Iraq in in 2003. And surely no author is so well-placed to help us think about that momentous decision than Professor Leffler, whose book really is, it seems to me, the gold standard on this topic and is likely to remain so for a good long time. Mel, thank you again so much for being with us. It's great to see you. Well, thanks for inviting me. Thanks to Sarah as well. It's truly a great pleasure to chat with you and to engage a a deep conversation about this critical decision. Mel, I I want, of course, to to spend the bulk of our time talking about the insights and conclusions that you offer in your really important book. But I, I, I propose that we start in a slightly different place. It seems to me one of the most remarkable things about your book is simply the research that went into it. You know, it, it seems to me uh, something we might agree on as, as fellow historians is that it can be exceedingly difficult to write about very recent events, even something that occurred just 20 years ago, with, with very much certainty or rigor because of the lack of sources and perhaps critical distance from those events. And yet you seem to have done exactly that, really written a definitive, really rigorous study. T- tell us how you went about researching the book and perhaps a little bit about the origins of this project. Well, I explained some of that in in the preface uh, to the book. And um, as a result of very unique circumstances at a meeting at uh, the University of Virginia's Miller Center, I encountered Eric Edelman. Uh, This is around 2009, 2010. Eric Edelman was at UVA's Miller Center um, to give a talk, as I recall. I had never met him. He had previously served as the Undersecretary of Defense for Policy from 2005 to, to, to uh, 2008. Uh, prior to that, he had been a key foreign policy assistant to Dick Cheney. Prior to that, he had been a key assistant to Strobe Talbot during the Clinton administration. He had wide experience, but he, Eric Edelman also, uh, we happened to go to lunch together. We were introduced, we went to lunch together, and uh, I was um, stunned to find out that Eric Edelman actually had a PhD in history. He had read extensively in the foreign policy literature. He talked to me in great depth about my own previous books. And he asked me, you know, what I was working on. And I said, well, I was finishing up a book on the end, on the evolution of the Cold War. And I was co-editing the Cambridge history of the Cold War, but I had dabbled in writing a little bit about what happened a- after 9-11. In fact, I had given my 
Harmsworth address at Oxford on 9-11 in American foreign policy. And I said to Eric Edelman, I said, you know, Eric, I might like to write a big book on post 9-11 as I had once written a book about the origins of the Cold War, because it seems that this is an incredibly exciting, important new era in American foreign policy that begins after 9-11. But truthfully, Eric, the sources are so sparse. I mean, my the, mm -hmm. the likelihood that I could get into the classified documents is so small. And he said, yes, Mel, that's a real impediment. But you know, I'd love to see you try to do a book on this. It's such an important topic. And I don't think it's being treated very objectively. You know, if you go to work on this, I will introduce you to some of my former colleagues. Well, that, ta that was tantalizing to me. It was also challenging. Um, I didn't know if I'd really have the gumption to interview these people. And frankly, I thought it was a lot of rhetoric. And I really was skeptical that Eric would introduce me to his former colleagues. But within two or three weeks, he had put me in touch via email with Paul Wolfowitz, uh, the Deputy Secretary of Defense, with Steve Hadley, the Deputy National Security Advisor, with Scooter Libby, um, Dick Cheney's uh, Chief of Staff. And, um, and very quickly, I was able to start interviewing these people. This began actually literally in 2010 and 2011. Other friends then introduced me to Colin Powell and Richard Armitage, the Deputy Secretary of State, and still another friend got me in contact with, um, with President Bush's daily CIA briefer, Michael Morell, and so on it went. So I had the opportunity and I pursued pretty systematically the, the chance to conduct my own personal interviews with lots of the policymakers, and several of them I met numerous times, like Paul Wolfowitz, three or four times. And at the same time, uh, I always was suspicious, as I write in the preface, that these very experienced policymakers would be far better able to spin me than, uh, than I would be able to probe them. And so <laughs> I was very determined, very determined from the onset to try to look as at, at as many documents as I could possibly access. This was not going to be a book based strictly on interviews. And the interviews count a lot in my book. I, I, mm. I had wonderful interviews, not every one, but I secured fantastically illuminating information from my own interviews. But I also systematically have examined the declassified documents um, for certain. The vast majority of documents about this period still have not no. been declassified. But those that have been uh, declassified, I've tried to systematically engage. I was very fortunate, as I note, to be able to use an enormous um, wealth of documents stemming from a British parliamentary inquiry called the Chilcot Inquiry, uh, which essentially was a, a British inv parliamentary in investigation that looked into why did Tony Blair go to war with George W. Bush? The, no. the, the, the inquiry was not about American decision making. 
but there was a voluminous amount of information, both in interviews and the documents that came out of the investigation that shed light on American policymaking, because there was a lot of discussion and a lot of memos about Blair's meetings with Bush, his phone calls with Bush, mm-hmm. uh, Condi Rice, the national security advisor's meetings and discussions with David Manning, to- Tony Blair's a national security advisor. So the materials that I secured from this British investigation play a key role in several chapters of the book. And finally, I want to emphasize that I tried to use as many um, Iraqi documents um, that that I could get hold of that have been translated. Iraqi documents, a huge bulk of Iraqi documents were captured by American forces, brought to Washington. you know, several thousand probably documents um, were translated. I do not speak Arabic, but I, I have read the translated documents. And um, also uh, people listening in will be uh, enchanted to know that uh, Saddam Hussein also taped quite a few of his meetings uh, with his own advisors. And there is now a book published by Cambridge University Press about uh, Saddam's tape recordings and uh, they illuminate a fair amount about his thinking. So those are the sources that I used for this book. Mel, it's, it's, it's easy it seems to me to make the case. We hear it all the time that the American decision to go into Iraq in 2003 was a, a, a moment of profound importance. The subsequent war would shape everything from American domestic politics to the um, political situation in the Middle East to American relationships with allies and so forth and so on. I, I wonder if, uh, again, by way of preface to getting really into some of the details of your book, if you could capture for us your sense of the, the momentousness of, of that decision. It was an enormously important decision. Just in human terms, think about about this. Uh, We know that probably 200 to 250,000 Iraqis died as a result of the war, the the war, the insurrection and the counterinsurgency. Um, What people don't know or few people know is that in addition to the 200 or 250,000 deaths, perhaps a third of the Iraqi population was actually um, uh, um, had to move from one area or or another inside uh, Iraq. So there was an enormous human cost. For the United States, about 9,000 American soldiers and contractors died. It's estimated that when all the costs of the war are tallied up, it will be about two trillion trillion uh, dollars. So those are just the, the stark costs. But in in larger imp- implications, of course, is that the war itself, in terms of American foreign policy, diverted attention. Uh, from the ongoing struggle in Afghanistan. The war in Iraq uh, led to, at least for a while and maybe until this day, Iranian domination of the Persian Gulf. The war distracted attention 
from the revanchism going on in Russia and the, and the rise of China. Mm. And I would say, most of all, the war had a huge impact on American public opinion. It, it certainly intensified partisan rivalries and it sundered trust in the American government. When weapons of mass destruction were not mm. found, it became a pervasive view that the administration had purposefully lied to the American people and had gotten us into an unnecessary war. And I think to this day, uh, that is a very, very a widespread view. I think in the long run of, Ameri of, of American history, you know, I would say two, two generalizations that go against one another. One is, if you think about it, uh, and you, as a historian who have dealt expansively with Vietnam, uh, the truth of the matter is that uh, the fact that the United States has expanded throughout its history, has, it has um, invaded other countries, has occupied other countries, first in Central America and the Caribbean at the turn of the 20th century, um, you know, is not a new thing. The United States has uh, expanded um, wildly after World War II, you might say, not only uh, into Europe, but into Asia. The United States got, it, got itself involved in a long war in, in Vietnam. After the Cold War ended, the United States intervened in Somalia and Haiti, in Bosnia and Kosovo. So there's a long list of, of interventions. So that in itself, um, is is not new but no. what i think is important is that the intervention in iraq occurred after the cold war was over at the height of america's hegemonic power in the world it was a moment that the united states was exercising more power and had more influence than ever before in its history and we may see in retrospect that 9-11 and the war in Iraq have turned out to be a turning point in the trajectory of American power. And it certainly has sundered trust in the American global experience. It certainly has sundered confidence that America's well-being is served by its international commitments. Uh, so I, I think those are some of the big mm -hmm. generalizations. Fascinating. Thank you for that. Um, okay, so let's go into the book itself. It, it seems to me one of the most important contributions that you make is to challenge, and uh, to my eye at least, really set the record straight on some claims that have been made repeatedly over the years since since 2003. And one of those has to do with the idea that George W. Bush was a weak president, um, maybe even a simple-minded president, right, who, who was beholden to more powerful and persuasive advisors like Donald Rumsfeld or Dick Cheney, who essentially led him to think in a particular way about Iraq. George Bush is, is different, it seems to me, in, in your book. I wonder if you could talk a little bit about your conception of Bush as a leader. Yes. And I must say, Mark, that uh, that turned out to be one of the great surprises of my research, because mm. I myself shared 
those views when I embarked upon this project. So one of the most surprising aspects of my interviews and of my research was to find out that almost all of Bush's advisors thought extremely highly of him, even when they would re reflected and were critical of this or that decision. I asked every, almost every single person I interviewed, especially those whom I knew had frequent contact with the president himself. Well, tell me honestly, you know, what, what were your impressions of the president? Um, and I was struck by the continued, consistent emphasis. The president was smart. The president was probing. The president was very disciplined. Uh, the president knew how to use time wisely. He got to the important issues. He didn't waste time. Um, he was, at times, fun to deal with. He was, you know, he, he, could, joke, he could joke around. Um, but at the same time, his spiritual sensibilities sort of reverberated. And there was this, there's this sort of um, unnatural juxtaposition of um, locker room talk and, um, and at the same time, spiritual uh, sensibility that, that characterized the president. But, and when you read the memoirs of, all, of most of the key people who worked for him, not every single person, but the vast, vast majority, when you read carefully, will say, you know, Bush was, was smarter than I ever assumed he was when I began working for him. Um, some policy, some members of the national security team have written in their memoirs. It took me just one meeting of the national, uh, sitting in on the, uh, on the meeting of the principal national security advisors to realize that the caricature of Bush mm. as being dimwitted was ridiculous. It was clear right from the beginning Bush was in control. And almost every policymaker, every single policymaker, even those who were extremely critical of some of the things he did, said the idea that Dick Cheney was running the government or Donald <laughs> Rumsfeld is just ridiculous. Now, Mark, you and I really, as, as historians, um, should really should not be surprised. And I was, I was surprised by the way they characterized Bush's intelligence and acumen. I was not surprised when they told me the president was making the decisions because I think anyone who really knows a lot about American history knows that the president makes the really critical decisions. He, presidents are not easily manipulated. So that part didn't surprise me, but I show throughout the book, and I think it's one of the important points, and I think I support it extremely well, all of the key decisions post 9-11 with regard to Iraq are really shaped by President Bush himself. It was President Bush, I demonstrate, who immediately, instantaneously on retur returning to Washington after 9-11 decided on the so-called global war on terror. It was mm -hmm. President Bush who immediately made the decision 
that the United States would not simply go after the terrorists, but would go after the states that supported terrorists. It was President Bush who immediately decided after 9-11, no, we are not going to focus on Iraq. We're gonna focus on Afghanistan and on the Al-Qaeda training camps. It was President Bush who in December of 2001 and January 2002, then shifted attention to Iraq and asked the, the head of CENTCOM, General Tommy Franks, to begin to design a war plan for Iraq. And so and it was President Bush who decided on what I call and what he called, uh, what President Bush and Condi mm -hmm. Rice called coercive diplomacy. All the key elements of policy toward Iraq were made by President Bush. And quite a few of these decisions, as I show in the book, were made against the advice of Dick Cheney and Donald Rumsfeld. For oh, example, oh. both of them during the summer of 2002, when there were Al-Qaeda terrorists spotted in northeastern Iraq, not a part of Iraq governed by, directly by Hussein himself, but there were unmistakably Al-Qaeda terrorists inside Iraq, and Shaney, Wolfowitz, Rumsfeld, and General Myers, the head of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, all wanted to bomb that, that, that terror, those terrorist camps in, 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 in northeastern Iraq. Bush said no. And it was Bush who at that same time said, I am going to follow the advice of Tony Blair and I am going to follow the recommendation of Secretary of State Powell and go to the UN and seek a new, a new resolution to force Iraq to reveal and relinquish, hopefully, its alleged weapons of mass destruction. Dick Cheney opposed that. So time and again, I tried to show Bush is, was the key decision maker. Of course, I also show in the book at great length as as, as you indicated and as, as Phil indicated, that Bush's um, leadership uh, was, was not as effective um, and was not as imaginative um, as some of it, as he hoped it would be mm -hmm. and as, as his advisors expected to be. Bush's leadership, his organizational approach to governance, um, had dramatic faults and played out very badly. And I know we'll talk about this, I'm sure, um, as the discussion proceeds. Sure, absolutely. Let's come back to that. Um, let me ask you, though, before we leave this subject of, you know, bits of conventional wisdom that don't perhaps stand up to close scrutiny. Uh, another claim that we often hear, it seems to me, is that the president and his advisors were guilty of manipulating intelligence to fix the intelligence around a, a preconceived policy, especially by drawing links between Al Qaeda and Saddam Hussein. You take issue in various ways, I think, with that simplistic view. And I wonder if you could talk a bit about your sense of how they used intelligence. Well, I, I do. And of course, the use of intelligence is a, um, a key part of my, uh, of my book. And, and when we talk about it, we need to look carefully at the dynamic flow of intelligence. And one of the things that we don't know, I don't know, 
no, no outside observer knows and very few insiders know exactly what the president and the vice president were reading each and every day in their presidential daily briefs. Um, But I do try to examine the role of intelligence um, in in decision-making. And I show in uh, the fourth chapter of the book why attention gravitated to Iraq in the late fall of 2001. And it had a lot to do uh, with intelligence. And the story to summarize shortly is is to realize several converging events. First, when the Taliban fled their training camps in Afghanistan, and when American special forces entered those training camps in November and December of 2001, they immediately found incontrovertible evidence that al-Qaeda wanted to develop weapons of mass destruction. There was just no question about that. Uh, At the same time, Bush, at this moment in time, in October, November, December of 2001, was gaining intelligence information that turned out to be flawed, but this was not at all known in October, November, December 2001, that Saddam Hussein was was seriously engaged in biological and chemical warfare activities. Uh, This this information, uh, at least some of this information came from an informant named, who was nicknamed uh, Curveball, and it turned out that it was misinformation. But at the time there was every reason um, to believe that information. There was also at this time extensive information about Saddam Hussein's links to terrorists, not necessarily to Al Qaeda and not not necessarily to Osama bin Laden at all. But there was no doubt that, that Saddam Hussein had extensive links to terrorist groups. So the convergence of this information in the late fall of 2001 immediately focused attention on Iraq. It was like, Al-Qaeda is definitely seeking weapons of mass destruction. We know we have overwhelming information that's coming in every single time, where every single day, we are overwhelmed with information that Al-Qaeda wants to inflict more harm on the United States and is planning another catastrophic event. Uh, We also know that Saddam gloated over 9-11, which he did, um, gloated over 9-11, and that Saddam seems to be developing biological and chemical weapons, and Al-Qaeda wants to get biological and chemical weapons. It was like, shouldn't we now focus on Iraq? So it wasn't that President Bush believed or was told that Al-Qaeda was linked to Saddam Hussein or Saddam Hussein was linked to Al-Qaeda. In fact, I know from from long discussions with Michael Morell, his CIA briefer, 
um, who categorically said, we told the president that Saddam Hussein had nothing to do with 9-11. But we also told the president that Saddam was developing chemical and biological weapons, that Al-Qaeda wanted biological and chemical weapons, that Saddam Hussein had extensive relations with terrorist groups, not Al-Qaeda, but with other terrorist groups. And of course, the global war on terror was not just a war on Al-Qaeda. It was a war on any terrorist group that might have global reach and that might seek to inflict harm again on the United States. So there was enormous preoccupation, what was on the president's mind. And I tried to be empathetic about this. Oh. It was that who could, who could have predicted 9-11 if mm. on... If on September 10th, someone told you that 19 terrorists with box cutters would seize four planes and blow up the Pentagon and the World Trade Center in New York, you would have said they were absolutely crazy. But after 9-11, the president was being charged for not having linked the dots together. In the fall of 2001, the president and his advisors, based on the intelligence they were receiving, thought they were, there were many dots that perhaps they should try to put together because if they didn't, there might be a terrible new, new, new attack on the, on the United States. Um, there, that wasn't definitely the case, no. but it could be the case. And it was just a matter of prudence to begin to think that Iraq might be responsible for such an attack if in truth, it had weapons of mass destruction. Mm. And this led to the decision that I emphasize, emphasize in my book in December 2001 and January 2002 to develop a war plan, to develop a war plan. But as I emphasize, and the, the development of a war plan itself did not mean war. The development of a war plan did not mean war. And I have some very compelling quotations that come out of interviews oh. that Tommy Franks, the CENTCOM commander gave, not to me, but to other folks who interviewed him, in which he states explicitly, when I spoke to President Bush in December 2001 at his ranch in Crawford, I didn't come away thinking that the president was intent on going to war. I came away thinking that the president was intent on positioning ourselves so that if he wanted to carry out a war, we would be able to do it effectively. Because one of the things that had happened after 9-11 was that the president found out very quickly that there was no good war plan to deal with Afghanistan when it was perceived to be essential to deal with Afghanistan. Now in December 2001, January 2002, he wanted a war plan so that he could deal with Iraq if necessary. And he certainly wanted to intimidate Iraq. And we can talk mm -hmm. more, more about that because that's an important part of the story. So Mel, you, you, you paint a picture ultimately, it seems to me, of a, of a thoughtful president um, e even to the point of indecision, an indecisive president who took a good amount of time to come to the decision 
actually to mount the war against Iraq. What, what was it that tipped the balance ultimately? And where would you place that date when he made a clear decision for what became the Iraq war? No, no one can tell you for certain when the, when the president made, made that decision. Um, it, it emerges uh, gradually. But in my book, I placed the decision in January and February of 2003, when he when he was r- really made the really made the decision to go to war. Although, even then, even then, some of his closest advisors believed that there were so-called "quote unquote" off ramps. Oh. So, um, what's and what, so the president made the decision because in part of Saddam Hussein's persistent defiance. One of the important aspects of my book, I would suggest, is to put some emphasis on what Saddam Hussein did. Uh, if, uh, if, if Saddam Hussein had acted differently, um, the outcomes might well have been different. But what what I demonstrate throughout most of this period was the persistence of Saddam Hussein's defiance. Grudgingly, of course, he acquiesced acquiesced to to new inspections when the United Nations passed a UN resolution and when the United States began deploying forces. He grudgingly allowed the inspectors back, back in. But I spend a lot of time in a couple of chapters examining uh, the regime's relationship to the inspectors and the inspectors' assessments of what was going on inside Iraq. And it is true, as as many observers have emphasized, that Hans Blix, the head of the UN inspection teams, became extremely exasperated with American impatience. And by the time the United States went to war, Hans Blix, the head of the UN inspections teams, was very critical of the United States. And this is often emphasized. What is not often emphasized is that Hans Blix agreed with President Bush, agreed that the only way to get Saddam Hussein to open up Iraq to allow inspections and to cooperate with inspections was through intimidation. Hans Blix writes in his own memoir, and you can see it in 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 some of the British documents when he's when he's talking to Brit- British officials and European Union officials. Hans Blix, Hans Blix says again and again that um, the deployment of military force is essential to get Saddam Hussein to be cooperative. And frankly, Hans Blick says, yes, we are not finding weapons of mass destruction. He says this in January and February, we are not finding weapons of mass destruction. But we also note that Saddam Hussein is still not cooperating. He's still not really made what Hans Blick keeps saying was, quote, end quote, a strategic decision to really cooperate. Now, it's a very complex picture what's going on in January and February 2002, because at that very time, Saddam Hussein is actually telling his own scientists and his own uh, military advisors to cooperate. 
But what's also fascinating is that his own advisors and scientists don't necessarily believe him that they should cooperate. So it's an extremely <laughs> complex picture. But the perception of Bush, and I emphasize this, is persistent defiance, thereby testing what becomes America's credibility, Bush's mm -hmm. credibility. We've now deployed forces, and this guy is still toying with us. This, this dictator, this brutal dictator, is still playing a game of chicken with us. And to some observers, it seems like he's winning the game of chicken. And that really, really um, exasperated um, uh, Bush and his advisors. And they explicitly begin talking about, okay, we've been threatening the use of force for time and again. Our credibility is now at risk. We must go, we, we need to go to war. Mel, one of the most notable things it seems to me about American policymaking in the run-up to the Iraq war, and I think your book really affirms this, is this lack, surprising lack, of really sustained consideration to what would happen in Iraq once the invasion had gone forward and once the Saddam Hussein regime had been destroyed. If you agree with the premise of my question, why were Americans unwilling or unable perhaps to give more thought to the political problems, the social problems that would of course bedevil the United States in such a profound way in 2004, five, six, and so forth? Well, one of, one of the important themes of my book, as you know, is that um, Bush uh, never really, never really insisted on a careful assessment of the consequences mm -hmm. and costs of an invasion and occupation. Um, and I fault him great, greatly for, for that. Um, I emphasize in the book that there was never a careful systematic discussion of the pros and cons of going to war. And, um, and anyone assessing the decision-making process at this point in time needs to strongly criticize uh, uh, the administration for that. So why, why, was, why were there these omissions gaping faults in the decision-making process? So three key themes of my book, as I emphasize in, in the conclusion, and that addresses the extremely good question you're posing. Um, the way, there, there are, are three words that help to illuminate oh. the answer to your question. Yeah. Fear, fear, power, and hubris. So the policymakers I try to show in the book were, were genuinely fearful of another attack. They were genuinely fearful of, if they were not fearful of an imminent attack, and some of them were not fearful of an imminent attack from Iraq or with Iraqi weapons of mass destruction, but they were fearful of what they believed to be Iraq's looming or gathering power if Saddam Hussein were not removed. Fear, fear helps account for poor decision-making. But even more directly related to, to your specific question, a sense of American power, 
Um, the United States simply assumed, policymakers assumed they had overwhelming power and that with the employment of that power, they would win an extraordinarily quick victory. Why did they believe this? Well, because it seemed to them and it seemed to most observers at the time that they actually had just enjoyed an extraordinarily quick victory in Afghanistan that no one had expected. One has to realize that in 2002, when these decisions are being made with regard to Iraq, the experience in Afghanistan actually seems to confirm the policymakers' belief that they could employ force effectively and quickly to obtain their objective, which was to get rid of the Taliban government in Kabul and to get the terrorists out of Afghanistan or to capture them and kill them. And so there was this sense, this overwhelming sense of the efficacy of American power. And we can talk more about that if you wish, but that's a key factor. And then the, the last one is hubris. Why did the United States not better understand the social and economic conditions inside Iraq? It was partly hubris. And by this, I mean this sense of the universe, universality and popularity of American values, the, the assumption that Iraqis would welcome American soldiers and greet American troops with enthusiasm, that it would be perceived inside Iraq that the United States was bringing freedom and democracy, and therefore Americans would be embraced. As Bush and his advisors thought, America had been embraced, for example, at the end of the Cold War, when Eastern Europeans and East Germans overthrew the Berlin Wall and then had these huge parades, triumphant parades about democracy and freedom. And um, Bush thought that experience uh, would be replicated. He did not know, specifically, he did not have a good sense that uh, the Shia, for example, in the south of Iraq, deeply distrusted Americans, deeply distrusted Bush's father because Bush's father had encouraged them to rise up in 1991 after the first Persian Gulf War, and they did nothing when Saddam Hussein brutalized them and crushed the rebellion. The Kurds in the north had a deep distrust of the United States because repeatedly, ever since the Nixon administration, the United States had betrayed the Kurds. So although Iraqis did want to get rid of Saddam Hussein, Bush was right about that. There's no question about that. He was a brutal dictator who by this point in time was despised by the vast majority of Iraqis. But at the same time, the Iraqis were not about to embrace an American occupation. Mel, what are, what are the lessons that policymakers or maybe Americans more generally should learn from the way in which Washington went to war in 2003? Well, that's a great question. And um, I think there are many lessons to learn. Let me, let me just state some of them that come to my mind very quickly. One is... Um, you need to temper your fears. 
modulate your fears. Um, not think that every threat is an existential threat. Modulating your fears. Two, grasping the limits of American power. That's an extremely Im Im important lessons. Um, three, recognizing uh, that your values, your ideals are not necessarily the ones that will be embraced by people who have different traditions uh, in their own country and different historical experiences. I also think that one of the most important lessons, Mark, is re-examining fundamental assumptions. Let me just take a minute to say this because it's such an important part of the whole story. American policymakers, I show in the book, understood that the intelligence they were getting, the so-called intelligence, was, in the words used by the intelligence community, murky. That there, that that there, you know, there was evidence that Saddam had weapons of mass destruction. It was by no means conclusive. There was evidence that he was dealing with many terrorist groups, but the evidence that he was dealing with Al Qaeda was extremely meager. The 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 policymakers understood that that the intelligence was murky, uncertain. But at the same time, at the same time, they absolutely believed that Saddam Hussein had weapons of mass destruction or could develop biological and chemical weapons very quickly and would eventually restart his nuclear program. Why did they believe this? Why did they believe this? They had good reason to believe it. They believed it because Saddam Hussein had developed weapons of mass destruction in the 1970s and 1980s, that he had used weapons of mass destruction in, his, in the war against Iran and then against his own Kurdish rebels, that he had lied about his weapons of mass destruction, that he had concealed his weapons of mass destruction. There was overwhelming reason to think that even though the evidence was murky, there was good reason to believe this. That was the basic assumption. So I would say one of the real lessons here is re-examine your basic assumptions, step back. Those are easy words, Mark, but everyone <laughs> who says that, including Mel Leffler and Mark Lawrence, um, <laughs> should realize oh. how hard it is to re-examine your basic assumptions. And often your basic assumptions are gonna be right, but you need to re-examine them because occasionally they really will be wrong. And unless you step back and are willing to do it, you're gonna be in trouble at some critical points. Well, Professor Melvin Leffler, let me just say congratulations again on this really spectacular and truly important book, Confronting Saddam Hussein, George W. Bush, and the Invasion of Iraq. Very hot off the press. Well, thank um, you. I, I thank hope you. everyone will, will be able to get a copy of that and really learn from this masterful study of truly consequential events. Thank you so much. My thanks to our sponsors, the Moody Foundation and St. David's Healthcare, and as always, to you for joining us. If you've enjoyed this episode, subscribe, rate, and review us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. 
I'm Mark Updegrove. See you next time.